Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with my wonderful friend, Zara McDonald. As you would have heard on our episode together last week, we are celebrating the launch of our new book, The Space Between, by chatting with each other about life in our 20s so far, the experiences that have shaped us, challenged us, and made us grow into who we are today. In this conversation, I have asked Zara about a lot, like how it feels to find out both of your parents are sick with cancer, to having fears about your fertility, working through chronic illness, and breaking down the self-doubt that often arises when you're in a job that's as public and as personal as ours. I consider myself so bloody lucky to call this woman my friend, my co-host and my business partner. And I hope you enjoy our chat together because I certainly did. Here is the incredible Zara McDonald. Zara Alice with an E McDonald. Welcome (laughs) to Shameless in Conversation. How do we feel? A little strange. Definitely like I don't have enough interesting things to say <laughs> to make this worth anyone's time, but let's give it a Click shot. Click off now if you've just tuned in. <laughs> nothing to say, nothing to learn. Goodbye. Uh, we are recording this the day before our book is open for the world to read. It is on sale tomorrow. How do you feel about that? I think I haven't given myself much time to think about it because sometimes I find denial is the best medicine. And if there's one thing I've learned in the last like 25 years is that denial is actually the worst medicine, but it is my kind of surviving mechanism at the moment. I think, you know, what's funny, the last, I don't think I've told you this, but the last sort of six or seven nights, I've had this recurring dream of waking up naked in a very inappropriate place. Mm. And it was only after like the third or fourth night. And I'm not into like woo-woo dreams connecting to your reality, (laughs) but it feels really odd that this consistent dream of feeling naked in really inappropriate places is coming just before we launch a book where you do naturally feel very naked. Mm. Yeah, it's a bizarre experience. I think that's the perfect metaphor or analogy confession I sometimes get the two confused to describe (laughs) what we're going through though like feeling the definition of exposed in front of a bunch of people who are going to be like perhaps pointing at us and hopefully understanding our points with a few things and not like ridiculing and laughing at us fingers (laughs) crossed that's the hope (laughs) talk to me about your childhood we start with this question for practically every interview we do what were you like as a kid You know, it's interesting. This is the second question we ask everyone. And I always think it's such a bang on question. But yet, when you're answering it yourself, I don't really know what to say. (laughs) I mean, when I was a kid, I 
I was like a huge goody two shoes. I followed the rules to an absolute T. I think anyone who I went to primary school or high school with will kind of attest to that. I I was the third child in my family. So I have mm. an older brother, an older sister and a younger brother. And I think I have the absolute middle child syndrome in that I feel like I speak very loudly all the time because I think when I was younger, I just had this fear that no one was listening to me. And my parents will laugh about that because they probably would say that I demanded the most attention out of any of my siblings, which is probably a very middle child thing to do. But I was kind of that cross between being really loud and really chatty, but also a massive goody two shoes who kind of loved respecting authority almost too much. Hmm. I was going to actually ask you, you've got two brothers and you have a sister. If I asked them what you were like as a teenager, talk about like that really gross teenage phase between like 13 and 15, how would they describe you? (laughs) I mean, I don't think they'll probably be listening to this because I think that (laughs) they are well done with me talking about me and me putting work into the world. But if they were to describe me, I was probably, I probably had a fuckload of attitude between the ages Mm. of 13 and 16. I say fuckload of attitude though, because I think, I think, I mean, everyone's got a warped perception of themselves. I think I was better than most of my friends, but in comparison to my siblings who were kind of like not very moody teenagers, I came along and was like, you know, wanting to go out more, wanting to kind of talk back a bit more. And I was suddenly like this dark horse in the family (laughs) being like, why is she talking so much? And why is she kind of got this weird way of talking? Like I always, you know, my siblings always used to bag me. I wonder if yours were the same for saying like too much, or, you know, that very Mm. teenage girly speak that is so stereotypical of that age. That was me. I think I I was just a stereotype. I think the funniest thing about you and me is that we're perhaps the cool child in very uncool families. Like compared (laughs) to the average person, thoroughly uncool, definitely not a cool kid at school. Compared to our siblings, perhaps the coolest one. Yeah, which is why I had the most attitude (laughs) in um, teenagedom, if that's a word. I think there's a direct correlation between having attitude in teenagedom and being the coolest kid in your family. Nah, I think that's pretty funny. And I think my siblings always joke now that I'm kind of the one with the most emotions in my family, that I'm Mm. kind of like up and down. (laughs) I think that's what my brothers always say, especially in the early days when I brought Ollie home, being like, oh, she really up and down yet, you know? It's (laughs) so funny they describe you as up and down because my dad described it as, you wear your heart on your sleeve, which is so (laughs) true for both of us. Talk to me about high school. You were very, very driven. You love to learn. Sounds like such a dorky thing because it is. You were a school captain. Were you always someone who kind of wanted to lead or wanted to be the captain of things? Embarrassingly, yes. I don't think it's something that most kids would say that, hey, I aspire to be the captain of this (laughs) school and take on that kind of very nerdy role. But to be honest, I grew up two years under my sister and Mm. I think growing up we were quite similar. We had pretty similar interests. We were kind of similarly invested in our school and our sport and whatever it might be. And I remember two years ahead of me, she was captain. And I remember coming after that and it sounds so silly feeling like this insane pressure that I was like the second best McDonald's sister to go through the school. And it is such a, it's such a silly thing to think, but I was like riddled with that anxiety of always being like Mieta's younger sister. And Mm. so after she was captain, I was like, I have to, I have to be this or else she is definitely better at everything than I am. How do you become school captain? Do you have like a campaign? Or do you just become it because people are like, obviously Zara McDonald was born to walk in her sister's shoes. Do you know what? Firstly, nepotism, the McDonald's last name. (laughs) Have a better older sister than you. Secondly, they say, it's very funny, they say it's student voted, but I would absolutely say, surely the teachers just like pick the person who's not going to like 
fuck up that much. Surely. I don't think it's student voted at all. It can't be. I mean, you got there, right? Yeah, I know. Exactly. And I (laughs) didn't have that many friends. So, (laughs) All right. So around the time you were school captain, when you were 17, you learned that your father had cancer. Two years later, when you were 19, you learned your mum not only had cancer as well, but had it quite seriously. You wrote about this time of your life and this experience in our book. And I want to read a quote back to you that really stood out to me. No one really talks about that moment where the exposing elements of adulthood make themselves known in a flurry and you have no choice but to adapt or risk being left out in the cold. I want to know, did both of your parents having cancer very close together make you grow up faster? I don't think so. I mean, it's really, it's a really interesting thing to look back on because it was a huge thing I think for our family to go through and I think it'll be really interesting if my siblings or my parents are listening to this because it's one thing to know that it's a big thing to go through but it was this experience that we kind of didn't let shake us and looking back on it I think that's the thing that I've been trying to grapple with the most not that it forced me to grow up any faster or it shook me anymore but that I don't think I dealt with that time very well in a sense that I don't think that I was there for my parents in in any way shape or form I remember I remember my dad telling us I I say I say in the essay that my dad told us downstairs on this red couch and my mum two years later upstairs on this beige couch and both of those times I didn't leave my spot on the couch like I didn't move I didn't move towards them I didn't hug them I didn't even say anything and I don't know why like I don't know why we just sat there and I don't know why I didn't just tell them in that moment that I loved them and anything that they needed we would do whatever it whatever it was but we didn't say anything and I think I feel a lot of guilt about that time and I think if there's anything that I wanted to communicate in that essay it was that I felt a huge amount of guilt and mum or dad, if they're listening to this, would probably think that is ridiculous. But but I think I sensed that they would be better off if they knew we were unaffected by what was going on. So I think we all just went about our world and our days trying to be unaffected by it because we thought that was the thing that was going to bring them a greater sense of calm maybe. Mm. But with hindsight, I, I wish... I wish I told them more things. Like I wish I told them that I loved them more, that I I would have been there for them had they need me at the drop of a hat. This might be me projecting onto you <laughs> and tell me if it is, but I feel like one of the biggest lessons you've taken on in the last couple of years has been acknowledging how you feel and expressing how you feel and not bottling things up in the moment. Looking back, do you think this was maybe the start of you bottling things up that were traumatic for you? Yeah, for sure. I think so. I think... I was really good at being like, I think I described it in the book as like I was a brick wall masquerading as a teenager. Like I didn't, I didn't really let people in. The The craziest thing to me is I remember when my dad was diagnosed with cancer and it was the start of my year 12 and I kept it a secret from my friends, which is like a really odd thing to do. And then about four months later, when I was kind of struggling on the weight of study and all of those kind of uh, trivial year 12 things like school formals, I, I told people and my closest friends were like, why did you not tell us this? Like, why Why is this not something that you would tell us? And I remember being like, I don't know. Like, I don't know why I didn't tell you. And it's true in the last few years, I think one of the best parts of the last few years has been like, fuck that. Like, fuck that sense that in order to be strong, you need to kind of like keep things from people. I actually think it made my relationships worse off. 
absolutely it made my relationships worse off because I don't think my friendships were able to deepen in the same way that they were when I said to them, I'm not okay and these are all of the reasons why. Like, I just don't think as a friend, you're a very good friend. And I know this from personal experience, if you're not willing to be vulnerable from time to time. And I kind of think now that if the same thing happened to me now, if both of my parents were really, really sick in a two-year stretch, I think I'd be curling up in a ball. I really do. I think I'd like, I, even the thought of that right now, like shakes me to my core. So I don't know why when I was 17 and 19 and had very little experience of the world, I felt like I just needed to move on and kind of brush it off my shoulder as if everybody's got something going on. Mm. I mean, I don't want to psychoanalyze you, but I will anyway. Do you think part of not wanting to talk about it and not wanting to tell your friends or let other people into what was actually going on in your life you did that because in part you thought the verbalizing it was kind of making it real and then you'd have to deal with it, that if you kind of dealt with it on your own, it didn't give it this weight? Yeah, I, I think probably. I think probably. I mean, we used to have this, I don't know how to say this joke without com- it coming across as completely fucked up, but sometimes when you look back on your own experiences, stuff seems far more ridiculous than it was. But I remember <laughs> particularly when when mum was sick, because she would joke that it's just like, ah, oh, fuck off. It's just a bad flu. And <laughs> like really serious breast cancer is, is not the bad flu, but I think she was so completely stoic and mm. so uh, completely driven by this desire to protect us that I kind of felt like I had a responsibility to protect her as well, maybe, or protect my mm. parents. I mean, here I am trying to psychoanalyze me and my siblings, but I think I think I also thought, and I still kind of think this to a point, that it wasn't my pain. Like, this is not my story and this is not my experience. Therefore, I don't deserve to be dramatic about mm. how I feel about it. Like, they are the ones who are going through very intense treatment and who are going through a kind of very intense fear, I imagine. Why am I the one to put myself at the centre of this story and make this about me? But I think anyone who has family that is affected by something like cancer or, or any other illness knows that to some degree it does affect the whole family. I mean, you're all kind of in it together, especially if you're all under the same roof like we were. And it it's probably does some good to acknowledge that. The next question I have is so telling as to how long we've been working together and how close we are because you asked me the exact same question in your interview. I wrote down what role did study and work play for you during what was a really turbulent and tough time in your life? You work incredibly hard. Did you find refuge in your career and in work around that time? Uh, that's so funny that we wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wrote, when you interviewed me, I was like, fuck, exact same question. Um, probably when dad was sick, I was in year 12. I think I probably absolutely threw myself into study and into making sure that, I mean, I, I joke that I was a goody two shoes and I didn't play up that much. But I think when you have a parent that's sick and you're in year 12 and you're, you know, could be going to 18th and getting pissed, you probably just make the decision not to because why the fuck would you add more stress to a stressed household? I think I probably definitely threw myself into study then, but later when mum wasn't well, I hated uni, the same as you, I hated uni. I felt very lonely and very lost and very much like I was never going to find my footing in the world and never going to find my career. And so what I ended up doing is I ended up traveling with my sister and it's kind of not very like me. I mean, I normally would have thought that I would have thrown myself into study and work. But I did go traveling with my sister and 
I think still to this day, I'm very shocked by that decision because I feel a lot of guilt that that I decided to go away for four months when mum was really ill, like me and my sister decided to. And I don't really know why we made that call. But then I, I, I guess then like a huge credit to how little my parents wanted this to affect our lives, like as if they weren't going to let us take our gap year and, and go away. We just did. But I, I threw my I guess the answer is I threw myself into something. But also defending you back to you, making that decision to take you and Mieta away for four months might have helped your parents and that they didn't have to worry about you. They could kind of go through what they were going through and not feel like they had to consistently like conceal it from their own children. Maybe you gave them space to kind of deal with what was going on. Oh, yeah. I think for sure. I think for sure. Trish and David will be nodding along. Trish and David will hear that and be like, yes, Michelle, good work. Yeah, for sure. I think they're they're first and foremost, I think, as parents and as any parent, I guess. I don't have Mm. kids. I don't know. But I I get the sense that their biggest priority is making sure that we're not worried about them or stressed about something that is, you know, of their experience or their reality. (laughs) I remember when my younger brother, my mum, I think when mum was sick, my younger brother was in year 12. Mm-hmm. And mum was like, my priority right now is for him not to be shaken by this. So she's like, I'm just going to make sure that, you know, he's really not fussed by this. And we kind of explain this to him in a way that is the least stressful way possible. And then a couple of weeks later, mum was like to me, do you think he understands what's happened? Because he's very <laughs> stressed by it. And I was like, this is the experience of our whole life, you know, like mum trying to protect us from it and then turning to me being like, hang on. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I I should put it on the record that my younger brother is probably one of the most kind and empathetic people (laughs) in the world so of course he knew but I think he knew too that the the easiest way to ease stress is to to keep going Mm. you touched on your career before and you kind of touched on being at uni and having no idea where you were going to end up and what your job was going to look like what was the big career dream though back then? If you went to yourself back at 20 and asked yourself, what is the ideal scenario? What would it have been? Because I don't think it would have been this, not to say this isn't amazing and wonderful <laughs> and we love it, but this is certainly not where you and I expected to end up in our careers. I really wanted to work in magazines or something. Like I really wanted to write feature stories. I really, really wanted to write feature stories on celebrities and yeah you don't go to journalism school and admit that to your cohort as everybody kind of wants to be <laughs> either a foreign correspondent or an AFL journal but one of the great joys of my weekends when I was a teenager was reading the the lift outs from um, mm. the newspapers and reading the profiles of celebrities and um yeah they can be frivolous and silly but I also thought they were kind of remarkable in a way that how they observed their subject or the celebrity in question and kind of the detail with regards to like what time they turned up, whether they turned up with an entourage, what they were wearing, what their body language was like. Like I just found that as a job, like the dream, like how cool is that to kind of meet people and pen their experiences down? I mean, I guess it's not that different to what we're doing right now, but I just wanted that. I just never said it out loud. When we were 20 or 21, we both met at Mamma Mia. And something I've been grappling with a lot lately at 26 is the thought that pieces I wrote when I was 20 or 21 are online and will be online forever. And anyone can go read them right now. And that's an incredibly daunting fact. How do you feel about, I guess, your opinions on the world and what you have to say about celebrity and pop culture 
all being available for public consumption, whether or not you are 26 or 20 years old? Uh, not great. I think that there would have been some terrible things that I penned down back in the day. There's no denying that. I think when you're really young and really impressionable and jobs in the media are really, really hard to come by, you write whatever you're told in, and it is edited in a way that you have no control over. And it is a headline is put on it in a way that, of course, you can't question. And that's the nature of almost every young journo in the industry. And you are just grateful that you have a job. So, of course, there are stuff that I will look back on and have looked back on and just shake my hat at and think, like, that was pretty stupid. But I don't think if I went back in time I could have done much differently. I mean, I would love to know. It's nice to know how much you kind of evolve and change and it's it's kind of a relief to know that you do get smarter as you get older and not more stupid. I mean, it's the same as the podcast though, Mish. Like I think there's stuff that we've said and done in the podcast two years ago that we would do differently now and I think it's stressful having that on the public record but it's also quite liberating because it's proof that we can evolve and change and grow and if you're not doing that then what's the point? Coming up after the break, how to find your voice even when you're self-conscious for having one. But first, a word from today's wonderful sponsor. I think one of the first times I realised you were a truly great writer, not just a great person, was when you wrote a piece for Mamma Mia about your infertility fears. So I want to talk to you about infertility because I don't think it's actually something we've spoken about in depth together. We've kind of touched on it here and there, but never really dove into it. In the book, you explain that gynecologists have told you that your chronic endometriosis might prevent you from having a family. And you wrote, I wonder if being a mum is actually in my destiny at all. And then I wonder why I've never felt like I had permission to say that aloud. Why was it important for you to include that story in the book? Because it's one of my favourites. I mean, the thing about endometriosis and fertility is the relationship between the two is incredibly complicated, like incredibly complicated. And even I, as someone who's had endometriosis since the age of about 19 or 20, don't really understand it. And I guess what I wanted to write was that I don't understand why this is something I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why there are no conversations about this. And in the book and in that essay, I wrote of this time after having surgery. And I remember because I Googled all things endometriosis when I was that age and I Googled and found that fertility was kind of, you know, couldn't be a question mark with women with endometriosis. I felt like then I needed to go and ask my doctor about it, but I felt so embarrassed about asking my doctor about it, like so embarrassed and I don't know why. And I remember asking my specialist and she said something like, oh, we'll just cross that bridge when we come to it. And I was like, but what if I come to it and, you know, my moments passed? Like my biggest fear would be no one having this conversation and me having so little information about what any of this means and then coming to a time when I'm ready to have children and some doctor turns around to me and says, what, you should have done that three years ago. Didn't anyone tell you that? And I think that a lot of young women suffering from kind of like chronic illnesses like endo or PCOS or whatever it might be would feel a similar thing in that we're never really given permission to kind of ask questions about our fertility and it's a complicated conversation. I mean, I know that conversations about young women and fertility can be hijacked by people that want to kind of target advertise, you know, egg freezing programs or whatever it might be. It's really muddied. But I just haven't seen anyone our age 
be able to have a productive conversation about their fear. And it's a conversation that gets such little airtime that I guess even by the time I started dating my boyfriend, I was like, I don't really... I don't really know how to phrase this because I don't know if it's going to be a problem. It may not be a problem, but how do we prepare for the fact that it could be a problem? Like how do we deal with a question mark? Like we have nothing more than a question mark and that's it, right? Well, it's kind of, yeah, 100%. You've got nothing more than a question mark, but then doesn't everybody have nothing more than a question mark? Like fertility is not innate to any person who wants to have a baby. So it's interesting to me that a person has to decide that they want to have a baby for fertility to be a conversation they're allowed to have, for them to suddenly work out whether they're able to have a baby or to not able to have a baby. Like why is it then when it might be too late that we have that conversation? And I don't know, I I remember when I wrote that story years ago now, I got a lot of messages from young women who I didn't even know had endo or whatever saying like, yeah, shit. I'm pretty scared about this, but I feel like it's it's a fear that I've put on boards. Like it's a fear that's just sort of like rumbling in the back of your mind that you know may come to the forefront in five or six years. And that's a very strange thing to think about and to live with. Do you let yourself consider a future with kids or is it sometimes too hurtful or too confusing to go there? No, of course. you. I do because, I mean, I've always kind of joked I don't really know if I'm that maternal or not. Like I love <laughs> little babies and I love little kids, but then I think about the thought of having one now and I'm like, ah, but I wonder if that's just kind of like more indicative of my age than anything else. No, nah, of course. I think about it a lot and I kind of think about it in a sense that like, well, I will work it out. Like no, there's nothing to say that it might be hard, but I've got this thing that sometimes brings me a lot of pain that might make it hard, but that doesn't make it impossible. So I'm kind of not going to completely give up any kind of hope now. In fact, I probably will have more hope now than I might have in five years. What can we do, do you think, to push the conversation forward? What could have been done differently in your situation to make you feel like you are at the table and you are more than welcome to, I guess, give input and ask questions and get feedback from your medical team and from doctors? You know what, I wish I wish I had a better answer for this in the essay as well because I I don't know yet. All I think I wish was that there were more public conversations about the issue in itself. And I know that sounds mm. like a very kind of easy thing to say. Let's just talk about it more. But for starters, we're not talking about it at all. I think the other thing is that the one thing that I wish is I really, really wish my specialist who – I liked a lot. She was very lovely. I wish she turned around to me and she said, you know what, it is so fair that you're thinking about this right now. Firstly, to alleviate any kind of embarrassment that I might have had about asking the question. I wish she turned around and said, it's so fair that you're asking about this now. Maybe it's too complicated for us. Or I just wish they gave me information because even now I'm sitting with you at 26 feeling like I don't have the information. And uh, no matter how much research I do, it just feels complicated. And I wish I had a doctor that kind of gave me that. Hmm. One theme I think you touched on in multiple pieces in the book, particularly your piece about painful sex and suffering with vaginismus, is the theme of loneliness, that for so long you have struggled with these things internally without, I guess, welcoming the outside world in. Do you feel lonely about those same things now as you're sitting here or do you think writing about it was cathartic and kind of freeing for you? I think one of the best parts about this job has been the way it's like, actively forced me to come out of my shell in a way that I never would had I done this job. I think if I never started this podcast and started working with you, I probably would deal with things in the same way I always have, which is just being bottling them up and not really talking to anyone about it. 
So I feel like the job has forced me to have conversations I really deeply haven't wanted to have, whether it be about vaginismus or endometriosis or about fertility. But there is something so fucking freeing about just having a conversation about it because you don't feel lonely at all. Like when I did that episode with you on Love Etc. about vaginismus, I was floored by the amount of people who reached out to me, but not just that, by the amount of people that I knew who reached out to me. And I was like, if I had have known all those nights that I was sitting in my bedroom, like devastated and lonely and in a really, really dark place that, you know, X person from that suburb and X person that I know from there was doing exactly the same thing. I wouldn't have felt so embarrassed, but I just felt like a freak. And I think the minute you feel incredible shame about something, you feel incredible loneliness unless you kind of force the conversation. And I don't know, having these conversations has been the best thing that I've ever done for my mental health. I also want to talk to you about your relationship with your body as well, because you wrote in our newsletter this year that you felt like your body was breaking down at certain points and that you don't really understand everything that's going on with it yet. Is that something that upsets you to feel like sometimes you don't understand why your body reacts to certain things the way it does? I think it's something that's very, very common for anyone with a chronic illness that perhaps doctors struggle to diagnose. Yeah, I mean, I went through a lot of unexplained pain through my teenage years, through my early 20s. I mean, even now in the 2020, I mean, you know this because I've worked so close with you, with you. I've gone through incredible pain and not have it diagnosed and it has been crippling. And I, I've always had this distinct feeling, particularly, particularly around painful sex, of being like very angry at my body, like furious so furious. And it was never a feeling that I'd heard anyone explain before this intense feeling of fury about what your body is refusing to do or how your body is refusing to cooperate with your mind. And it's interesting, even going into the next week of um, book stuff, I'm kind of like, it feels a little like Russian roulette waiting for a ball to drop on my body to fall apart and not being able to plan for that. And that makes me angry. Like it makes me so angry that I... I'm kind of at the mercy of this body that I don't understand. And I think that a lot of women who've kind of gone through similar things would feel the same, that you are at the mercy of a body that you don't understand and kind of learning to kind of part with that anger and make peace with that anger is a long, long process. Why have you been so vocal about this? Like, what do you want to achieve by speaking about your vaginismus? I think that in particular, I've always had such utmost respect for you. I think it's one thing to get on a public platform and admit that you have endometriosis, which is still a health condition that is kind of marred with taboo. It's another thing entirely to talk about a condition that prevents women from having pleasurable sex. And I think the idea of women's pleasure has been something you and I have found really interesting this year. And it's like the next book club, it's the focus of that book as well, because we want to talk about it and we want to think about it. Why did you take that step to talk about it publicly with your vaginismus diagnosis? Because that is a huge decision to make. And one year on, how do you feel about making that decision? Oh, it was the best thing that I've ever done. And I think when I penned the essay about vaginismus in the book, the hardest part was writing the end of that essay because I, for so many years, held so much resentment for women who had fixed their pain and fixed, you know, their conditions because I kept wondering why I wasn't there too, that like I had been working at it for six or seven years and yet here I am still in the same spot that I was in six years ago. And yet the minute I started talking about it, like I genuinely started to breathe again and I I kind of rid myself of shame almost instantly and it was such a remarkable feeling and and I think when that happens I mean for me in particular it meant my body started experiencing far less pain 
the reason that I talk about it is because I feel like I don't really have a choice. I feel like when you end up in a job like ours and you have an audience like ours who are so generous with their own stories, you get to a point where you're like, you can't be a coward about this. Like, I can't tell every story in the world. And to be totally honest with you, I've had a very lovely life. I mean, I am white, cisgendered, able-bodied, like I've, I'm straight, like I've had a pretty lovely, lovely life. But there are experiences that I can speak to and it is not my job if I have this platform now to speak to them, even if I don't want to really. I, I think I think it is absolutely your responsibility to do good with what you've got. So I kind of live by the mantra of just like close your eyes and go. Um, I think we did that with Shameless, like close your eyes and go. I think I did it with a lot of the essays in this book where you don't really think about the impact or you don't really think about the fact that your grandmother might be reading them. You just, you write them anyway <laughs> and you worry, you worry about it later because I don't think, I don't think you could possibly do this if you did, if you thought about, you know, your family members reading them. You wouldn't even, you, you wouldn't put them together. This job is bizarre, as you just touched on. And I want to flesh that out a little bit, because I think one of the common misconceptions about us, given the line of work we're in, the kind of content we talk about, the kind of opinions we put out into the world is that we don't care what people think of us. <laughs> and as 50% of that us, I know that's not the case, because I certainly care what people think about me. Talk to me. Do you care what people think about you sitting on that microphone right now? Yeah, yeah, I do. But I am becoming less married to that idea the more that time goes on. I mean, I've always, I think one of the greatest flaws of my personality forever has been this deep kind of uh, deep care about what people think. And it's probably why I was such a fucking goody two-shoes when I was a kid. It was probably why I forced the teachers to make me school captain because I cared about you know, I cared about that. And I think I always kind of had this, I guess I always conflated people liking you for you being a good person. And I thought, well, if people don't like me, then that must mean I'm not a good person and I'm not putting good stuff into the world. But I think by the time you do this job and you kind of reach however many people we reach a month, which is well over a million, people are going to fucking hate you. (laughs) It's just, like the stats tell you, the stats absolutely tell you that that's going to be the case and there might not be many of them, but they're going to exist. <laughs> and it's taken a lot of work, like embarrassingly, and it does sound embarrassingly, it takes a lot of work to kind of get your head around that when you're wired in a way that I'm wired and I think you're wired. And uh, you kind of get to a point where you have to rewire your brain to consider the fact that just because someone doesn't like you doesn't mean you're a bad person. And you could put heaps of good into the world and someone might still think you're annoying or you talk about something too much or you talk too quickly or you laugh is annoying. Like that's always <laughs> going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's something I, – I, I think maybe I'd be a bit of a narcissist if I said I'd never cared what people thought because I do because I don't want to hurt anyone and I think that's what it's rooted in. I never, ever want to hurt somebody. But you do get to a point where I think I have a pretty good circle of people around me who will pull me up on something if I'm not doing it right and I trust those people and if those people like me and if kind of my family and my partner and my friends and you still want to hang around me then I think I'm doing an okay job I'm out of here see ya <laughs> Say I want to come bitch yeah. <laughs> walk away from the business and from you and from our like weird marriage that we've established mm. I think you and I toss back and forth the things we don't want to be, right? Like we don't want to be considered narcissistic. We don't want to be considered self-centered, X, Y, Z. 
what do you want people to say about you? Say you do come up in conversation. There was a there's a great piece in the book that you write about feeling confident in your own voice and how that confidence was shaken when you learned that your name came up around a dinner table with friends of friends and the things that were said about you weren't very nice. I want to know though, what would you want people to say about you? Like what's important <laughs> to you? What's a priority for you that is attached to your image if you don't want to be seen as a bad person? <laughs> Oh, what a fucking confronting question. I mean, it's funny because you will pretend in modesty that you don't know what the answer is, but I think everybody <laughs> knows the answer, right? I think you know it straight away because I think if you don't if you don't know the answer straight away, then isn't that a worry because aren't these the things that you're trying to live to? So I would like people to say that I'm kind and I'm thoughtful, that I'm thinking of other people more the often than I'm thinking of myself, that, that I don't have a huge ego and... <laughs> And that I'll listen to them. I don't. I don't want people to say that I will talk over somebody. I want people to say that that I'll sit in conversation and and like be a good ear if they need it. And that's I guess more specific to friendships and people that are really close to me. But I, I just want people to think that yeah, I would want people to say that I'm thoughtful or kind. Yeah, and it's so simple, but I think it's the thing that I actively work towards a lot. And I think it, it it's a lot to do with like I watch my mom or my dad and my siblings, and I think you learn a lot from the people around you. And I think my mom always instilled this thing in me where she was like, never be the first one to talk about yourself in a conversation. Like never be that person who exited a conversation and realized that you didn't ask a question. So I've got to this point now where I'm like obsessive about asking questions because all I can think of is like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Must ask more questions. But I I, I do really genuinely want to be interested in other people. Despite the fact that we have both admitted that we – don't love the idea of people not liking us. In fact, we find it quite uncomfortable still. We continue to come on the podcast twice a week, every week, sometimes three times a week in book club weeks. And I want to know why do you keep rocking up despite the negative aspect of people not liking you or people making judgments on who you are as a person? Why is it important for you to continually use your voice? I think what people listening to the podcast week in, week out would be surprised about is that sometimes I come across far more self-assured than I am. And I only realized that kind of maybe a year ago where I said like, oh God, I'm like, I often get very nervous before we do the podcast. And like, I am terrified about how things will be received. And then I remember someone who I respect a lot says, you're kidding. I'm really surprised about that. I think this person thought I was kind of like almost brash in my opinions and was like so sure of everything. And I am like almost deeply the opposite. I am terrified of being... I feel like this is like the most false modest thing to say. Like I'm terrified of being the center of attention when your whole job <laughs> is being the center of attention. But I feel very exposed by that. I don't think that I was naturally built for a job like this. And it does make me question who is built for a job like this. But I really, really don't think that I was built for a job like this. And I love it deeply. But it means that there's a lot to learn and kind of a lot to kind of make peace with. And so I was telling you the other day, I was talking to my psychologist about that sense of exposure like it is something that I've had to work through a lot and it might sound very frivolous to the ears of people listening but it's something that I've had to work through a lot as I said and she said I find you so interesting like (laughs) you have this really deep desire to share your voice but you also have this deep embarrassment about how loud that voice is and that kind of shame and that embarrassment tries to kind of squash that voice but the voice always just just wins out by like an inch every single time and I think she was kind of bang on I like get terrified of doing this job every week and I keep showing up, I think, because my desire to speak about things is that inch more kind of powerful than the shame I feel about having the opinion. So I don't know, you put it really lovely once as well when we, when I was 
really struggling. I was really, really struggling. And I remember exactly where we were. We were sitting in a car on Kingsway. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, I cannot do this job. I'm not like you. Like, I was literally cowering in your passenger seat. And you were like, I think you'd come out of a psych appointment and you were feeling like really fucking emboldened. (laughs) And you were like, the biggest shame would be to shut up just because you're scared. Like, the biggest shame would be to shut up just because you care about what people think or just because you feel overly exposed all the time. And I carry that with me a lot. The biggest shame would be to shut up. I mean, like, fuck, we we probably don't get it right all the time and we're not going to be perfect people, but I think it would be a shame for women to shut up doing whatever they're doing. Mm. What are the big standout lessons you've learned about yourself over the last two and a half years? You and I never, ever, ever imagined being here, releasing a book together after leaving our jobs at Mamma Mia. Like, it was just so not on the cards and we are both so surprised with how Shameless has taken off. What have you learned about yourself in that time? I have learnt that I'd be really surprised had you told me two and a half years ago that I would be here feeling vulnerable but like emboldened and not not completely paralysed by the fear of speaking. I'd be really surprised about that because I really thought then that that would get in my way. Like I really, really would have. So I've learnt that like I can really back myself yes, I'm like chronically unsure of myself and often nervous and a bit frazzled all the time, but I like myself and like that can often be enough. Liking yourself can be enough to kind of withstand anything. It can be enough to withstand the opinions of others. It can be enough to withstand fear. And that's been a really lovely thing that if you work on liking yourself, then everything else kind of becomes secondary and in your periphery. And I don't know, I guess I've learned that like, I want my circle to be smaller than ever. Like I love I love the people that I've surrounded myself with. I think we naturally meet a lot of people in this job because we're talking to people all the time and it makes me want to it makes me stoked with the people that I've been able to to keep in my life up until this point because they're incredible and um I in the acknowledgments of the book I wrote about my siblings. I said they have like this unique ability to inflate my ego when my weird job gets me down and deflate it when they think I take myself too seriously. <laughs> yes. And I think that's kind of not just, I mean, it's in particular them, but um, so many people in my life are very, very good at that. And I'm just very grateful to have them. My last question, you know what this one is. How do you define success? How does success manifest in your life? It's so dumb because I agree with you. I think my answer changes weekly or monthly. For a long time, I had the same answer, which was success to me is being fulfilled because I think that you can control fulfillment. You can't control happiness. You can control the stuff you put in your life. You can control how much your job fulfills you if you're lucky, like I am and you are because we work for ourselves. And you can control kind of the people around you that fulfill you. But I kind of realized in the last few weeks, particularly the deeper we've got into lockdown, that what I really meant by that was that still I was defining fulfillment by work because I often felt most fulfilled by work. And what I've struggled with most in the last kind of few weeks is separating myself from my job because we've had nothing else going on. And I think that's been a huge issue for a lot of people in lockdown. Like, who am I if not for the person that I am at work? And what I think success is right now, I think I would be the most successful version of myself is if I'm kind of watering and nurturing my two separate identities, like my home identity and my work identity. And if those two things are separate, Because if my kind of home identity is too tied up in work, then a bad day at work means a bad day at me. 
And I don't want to live like that. Like I don't want to live where both of those things are so completely entwined, where that's all people know me for as my job rather than the person that I am. So right now, success is not always being tied up in my work and making sure I am nurturing the part of myself that doesn't work. I love that so much and I love you and I'm so excited <laughs> that we get to release a book together because I feel like your brain is incredible and insightful and intelligent and I'm very, very lucky to have my words alongside yours. Right back at you. I feel exactly the same. It feels like a cheater's way to writing a book. Putting <laughs> smart words under your byline. <laughs> also 50% of the work, which is so ideal. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much for tuning in to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Zara McDonald. If you want more from Zara, then I recommend you listen to every other episode of our podcast together because she is the star of Shameless. You can also find her on Instagram at Zara McDonald. That is Z-A McDonald. If the topics we touched on in this episode stood out to you, then I really do recommend you pick up our new book, The Space Between. It's a collection of essays, listicles and email chains about the mess and magic of life in your 20s. It is available via all good bookstores. There's also an audiobook, an ebook, everything under the sun, really. And to be honest, I am so privileged to have my words next to Zara's. I have such respect for her, of course, as a human being. She's one of my best friends in the entire world, but she's also a remarkable writer. And if you get the book, I promise you, you will just adore her essays. She is so brilliant. That is all from us, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.